and I invite you to stand out of respect for the reading of God's word once again. The first was a short reading. This one is a longer one. So if you feel yourself saying, this is quite long, you may, you certainly may be seated. Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong. But one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in these times. And from a branch from her roots one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with him, with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and their, and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall retain, refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall rise again. A multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up sage works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. 
And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed, and he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come to the south, into the south, but it shall not be uh, this time as it was before, for ships of Kittim uh, shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm. And take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god. He shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a, for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. He shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with a great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh Lord, speak to us, illuminate our hearts, help us to understand your word, help us to depend upon you, help us to find satisfaction in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you open your bulletins, 
you'll find tucked in there something that you normally wouldn't find. It's, it's an outline. Um, you'll also see on, on the back of your bulletin a handout. Uh, an outline for the sermon itself. But then tucked in your bulletin, you'll find a historical outline of major figures in Daniel's chapter 11 vision. Now, you see this and you say, what has the pastor done? Is this going to be like a historical lecture? Because to many of us, history can sometimes be, can feel boring. In fact, I found a quote from um, Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey that I really appreciate. I think that she shares what, what many of us feel about history. Um, one of her characters in Jane Austen's novel says this, history, real solemn history, I cannot be interested in. I read it a little as a duty, but it tells me nothing that does not either vex or weary me. The quarrels of kings with wars and pestilences on every page, the men also good for nothing and hardly any women at all. It is very tiresome. And uh, <laughs> I, I resonate with that, right? History can feel very tiresome. It's like, what, what are we doing? Are we just hearing of more popes and kings and wars? And um, some of us feel that way. But I want you to see that in this passage, in this prophecy, God brings history to life. Now, at first you glance at it and you say, that's just like Jane Austen's novel is saying. It's just another list of kings. It's just the same thing I've already experienced. But I want you to see, this is what we're after today, that God brings meaning into history. He infuses meaning into history. And it's because, what, it's because of God and what he's done and what he is doing that history matters. In fact, you'll remember that this prophecy, this vision comes to us um, right after this dramatic introduction in, in Daniel chapter 10, in which an angel comes to Daniel and, and prepares him for this vision by pulling back the, the, um, the curtain of history and showing him that behind it is a spiritual war raging. And here we've had this great buildup to this vision. Uh, what, what is going to be shared? Well, here it is before you. A prophecy about history. A prophecy about the meaning of history. So let's take a look at this. It's important for God's people to see. God has already laid that out. We're going to look at several dimensions of this prophecy. First, we're going to see how it's a detailed prophecy. And then we're going to acknowledge that it is a troubling prophecy and wrestle over what to do with that. And then finally, we're going to to, to rest in this, that it is an instructive prophecy. You can't miss that this is a detailed prophecy. In fact, it took seven minutes to read the very detailed prophecy, but I, I, I felt like if we cut it, any, uh, cut it short at any place, we wouldn't be doing full justice to what is going on here. God is laying out this sweeping, detailed range of prophecy. In fact, it's the most detailed vision in the Old Testament. 19 kings, 300 years is what this prophecy spans. Kingdoms rising and falling, wars and conspiracies and the great drama of the ancient world captured in a single vision laid out before us. Seven minutes, a vision hundreds of years before came to its its fulfillment. I just want you to notice some of the details included here. Notice the specific empires mentioned. Persia is mentioned in verse 2. 
And we see specific kings named, right? You look at your, your handout and you see these kings are not just, you know, when, when Daniel says, when Daniel hears the, the angel say, three more kings shall arise in Persia. This isn't made up. Three kings followed. You see their specific names mentioned. And then a fourth shall be richer than all of them. Um, clearly, you open the history books, clearly a reference to Xerxes the first. And uh, he indeed stirred up the Persian Empire to take on this mighty superpower that was rising called Greece. But again, the prophecy makes clear it was only for a time until a mighty king shall arise. And who was that? It's none other than Alexander the Great. This is very clear from the history books. We, we can't miss that, that what is unfolding in this prophecy are specific details, true details. And it was Alexander the Great who just took the ancient world by storm and turned it on its head and made it Hellenized, a Greek empire. But as this prophecy also makes so clear, Alexander the Great did not hand over his empire to his posterity, to his sons, for his sons uh, were taken out. They were killed. And um, who followed was none other than Alexander's four generals. And his, his uh, empire was split into four sections. And it was two sections that came to dominate. Who were they? Well, t- the vision makes this perfectly clear too. The north and the south. The Ptolemies from Egypt and the Seleucids and the north from Syria. And you see in the vision and we see in the history books that there's this dramatic war that just rages on and on between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and uh, the north and the south are locked in this the battle of uh, northern and southern aggression and it just goes on and on you wonder who who's going to be in power tomorrow who's going to have more land tomorrow the north or the south So I want you to notice the specific kingdoms. I also want you to notice the specific details, the rich details that are just laid out to us. It's like, you want more? Look at this. Specific details of, um, of kings and what they did and, and, and the lands they took over. Um, notice one example. If, if I were to, to give it all to you, you'd just be overwhelmed. It wouldn't really be a sermon, right? It would just be a history lesson. But I want you to see one example of how specific this is. Look at verse 6, in which we hear of a daughter of the king of the south who shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, uh, but she shall be given up. Now, who on earth is this talking about? You read it and you say, well, I don't know. But, 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 but we see, as history unfolds, there is a specific reference for this person. Her name is Bernice. <laughs> She was the daughter of uh, Ptolemy II, and it was the first attempt of the South to make peace with the North. And the way they did this was to send, um, uh, the, the king sent his daughter and said, hey, Antiochus, I give to you my own heart. I give to you my daughter. Marry her and be at peace with us. But there was a problem because Antiochus was already married. But that wasn't really an issue for him, of course, he discards his first wife and takes Bernice as his own. But that was a fatal mistake because his first wife was really mad about this and she finds a way to poison him and Bernice and their servants. And in this tragic happening, the, the, the North is just slammed by death. 
And the, and the South is slammed by the death of, of, um, of Bernice. And it was this very year, perhaps over a heartbreak over this instance, that the king of the South, Ptolemy II, dies. All of this is laid out in this prophecy. Are you seeing it? Verse 7 goes further. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. Indeed, who replaced Ptolemy II? Well, a branch from the roots of Bernice, Ptolemy III. Specific history, specific kingdoms, specific details. Uh, You get the picture. Could it really be that God encoded all of this long before it happened? That's what's being claimed here in the book of Daniel. Hundreds of years before this happened, God laid it out in unmistakable terms. Now, many people, if you, you, I want you to be clear, to, to know, understand this. You, you listen to the History Channel. You open any commentary you'll find in the library, and you will discover that there are many that say that, in fact, that is far too convenient. That what happened is that someone who would just kind of took on the name of Daniel wrote about this looking backwards. So not in the 5th century, but in the 2nd century, around the year 160 AD um, or BC, uh, some random uh, Jewish person took it upon themselves to craft this kind of fake prophecy uh, to bring comfort to, their, to, to the people. Now, that's kind of convenient, isn't it? Do you, do you understand what's being said? That this isn't a real prophecy. That this is a fake prophecy. It looks like a prophecy. It, it, it feels like a prophecy. But when push, push comes to shove, it was made up. It was made up after the fact. And there are ways that people try to soften that blow and say, well, it was for a good reason. It was for a good purpose. But I mean, let's just get down to the fact. In that view, it's very convenient because you don't have to wrestle with the fact that all of this was given by a sovereign God hundreds of years before it happened. But I want you to see that's not what the scripture is saying. First of all, let me assure you that there is plentiful historical evidence that that is not the case. There's plentiful rich evidence that the book of Daniel, that this vision was written hundreds of years before these happenings took place. I'll show them to you. Come and talk to me after the service. But let me also reassure you of this fact, that it was written beforehand for a reason. The vision was cast before the history took place to show us who God really is. Our God tells the end from the beginning. That's what we heard in Isaiah 44. Behold, who is like me? I tell you the end from the beginning. I tell you ancient things before they're done. That is our God. That is our King. Our God doesn't react to history. He's behind history. He's crafting history. Every chapter is in his hands. In fact, that's what we were told in in, in Daniel chapter 10, that that God has all of this written in the book of truth. So we can be unashamedly supernatural about this. We could say, no, God wrote it. The vision was cast before it happened. All of these details. And what that means is that God is wonderful. God is sovereign. God is amazing. And God brings great comfort to his people. You can see how that's a comfort, right? 
Israel's people receiving this news while they're headed back from exile. And they're saying, what lies ahead of us? And, and the very thing that they can take, um, take assurance in is this. That no matter what happens in history, no matter what these winds and turns are all about, God's behind it. He's sovereign. He's in control of it for their good. And we can have that same comfort today. Do you believe that? We need to hear that. And Daniel's, Daniel's uh, people really needed to hear that because there was trouble ahead. And the prophecy makes that clear. This is a troubling prophecy, a troubling vision. It's not the kind of prophecy you'd be excited to hear if you were Israel headed back to the land. And you, were, you, were, uh, you were starting to face some difficulties in the third year of King Cyrus. And then suddenly you receive this vision given to you from the hand of Daniel. And the vision says, watch out, trouble ahead. In fact, where are God's people in this prophecy? Did you find them? Did you see them? Where are God's people when Persia and Greece collide in combat? Where are God's people when the kings of the north and the south are raging against each other in these fierce wars? They're caught in the middle. You've got the north and the south, and who's in between? Well, it's, it's Israel. And they just keep getting swept and taken over by, by, by empire after empire. It's like every other year, they're under someone else's control. Now, that's exhausting. That's frustrating. It's like you've got two football teams that are coming uh, against one another. Um, and, and here they are. They're, they're, they're set up um, in, in their helmets and their gear. Those are the great empires, the great Gentile kings of the world. Well, where's Israel? Israel's the football being passed back and forth, kicked around. And in fact, it gets so bad that here's what Israel's told. There will come a point, verse 21, when a cruel quarterback will have you in his hands. And who is he? None other than Antiochus IV. He is like a second century BC Hitler. This guy, I mean, we've talked about him, right? Daniel chapter 8. You can go back and listen to that sermon if, if, this is, if Daniel is new to you. Uh, Daniel chapter 8 unfolds a man so evil, so wicked, that he slaughters God's people just because he wants them to conform to, to his culture. He torments the people of God. He blasphemes God. He sacrifices a pig on the altar of God. And that's called the abomination of desolations. That someone would be so prideful that a Gentile ruler would be that wicked to march into the presence of God and and to sacrifice an unclean animal to Zeus. And Israel says, wait, that's going to happen to us? Yes. The temptation, my friends, for God's people when they hear this is to, to what? To despair. The temptation is to say, look, if this is what is happening to us, if this is, if this is what we're going to get, just another Gentile kingdom after another waging war fighting over us, then, then what are we doing? Why are we trying so hard to push back? Why don't we compromise? And that's what some people are doing. You notice that in verse 32, violating the covenant of God, becoming like the nations around them. The other temptation is to try to Bring in the kingdom with your own power. People were doing that in verse 14. Did you, did you hear that? That the violent amongst your own people, amongst the Israelites, are going to try to fulfill the prophecy through their own means. What are they doing? 
They're, they're, they're uh, volleying, volleying for political power, trying to, to take over by force, trying to uh, win the vision for themselves. So the temptation when you hear and when you see this stuff going on, when Israel would experience this, is just to kind of give up or to turn from faith in God to, to someone or something else that can give them stability. Isn't it the same for us today? Aren't we living in, in troubling times? Aren't we living in times where we look around us and like we open um, our, our phones and look at the news and we're saying like, okay, another, another Gentile ruler uh, wrecking havoc, another ruler doing something that we think is really frustrating, another ruler telling the church what to do. We all experience times when our little stories get caught up in the larger conflict and it feels completely out of our control. It happens on the world stage. It also happens right in front of us. I mean, you know, college students. You go to a secular university and you're, you're studying, and, but, but around you, what, what's happening? Not only a clash of worldviews, uh, but also... Um, you, you see some students that have given themselves over to the idolatry of, of success and, and career-driven success. And then you look the other way and you see other uh, students that have given themselves over to the idolatry of, of, of drinking themselves into, um, uh, out of their minds. You're saying, I'm caught in the middle of all this. I feel small. God's church feels small. And all this looms so large. God says we can continue to expect this kind of thing waging around us as we look for the end to near. And in fact, we get a a hint of this at the end of Daniel chapter 11. You see, there comes a point where we start wondering, are we still reading about Antiochus? Scholars have pointed this out. You get to, to verses 36 all the way to 45, and you start to feel like, yeah, I think I'm still reading about Antiochus Epiphanes, but actually, it kind of feels like I'm reading about some other kind of king. So much so that those critical scholars I told you about, they say, okay, up until verse 35, the writer is, is like doing fake prophecy, but then when he gets to, to 36 through 35, he's actually attempting real prophecy and saying, okay, here's what Antiochus is going to do. I don't believe that. I don't think that's what's happening. And I think there's an explanation for why there's a little bit of dissonance and why we have the question, huh, is this really Antiochus' life or is this someone else? I think it is because what we saw in Daniel chapter 8 is that Antiochus is actually a model, a figure who points forward to the kind of evil people that, that God's people are going to face throughout history. Even the, the Antichrist himself, second th- Thessalonians 2 says very clearly that before the history book closes on the church, there will be a violent and evil man in, in, the, in the very cookie cutter mold of Antiochus who will step up and will oppress God's people. And Jesus is going to smite him. And so what does this mean for us? It means that we need to be more, we need to be on guard. We need to be aware that the nations will be raging around us as Christ continues to um, uh, bring his church forward with militant success, we will see the nations continue to rage. 
we will see the Antichrist rear his head. And we're going to be tempted to compromise, capitulate. And that's why God actually gives us in this prophecy great instruction. If you're looking for the church in this prophecy, if you're looking for God's people, and we've seen them, right? The glorious land, the people who know their God. You'll see that the church is really at a crossroads, stuck at the crossroads of history. And on one side, we see utter futility. And on the other side, we see faithfulness. And this is really where we we start to make traction and say, okay, there's something here for me to gain. This isn't just a history list. This isn't just a lecture of kings and popes and men. This is for me. This is the, God's meaning in history directing me. First, I want you to notice that God teaches us. He gives us great instruction by showing us the futility, the utter futility of, of the godless nations around us. Every other verse in this passage, it feels like someone else has the power. Did you notice that? Did you notice it's like, okay, another guy comes and goes. And then here's Alexander the Great, and he only gets one verse. I mean, what, a guy who, who has thousands of books written about him, one verse before someone else takes over. And over and over, we see this refrain that, that people have great aspirations and, and, and uh, their, their daughters are thrown into the mix to try to accomplish those aspirations. And then they just come to nothing. And it's like the, the great project of history is like chasing wind and it's, it's like dust going through our hands. What is God showing us? He keeps saying over and over again, but it will not work, but they will fail, but they will come to an end. What is God teaching us? He's teaching us simply this, that he does not look at celebrities and politicians and the powerful ones around us the way that we look at them, the way we're tempted to look at them. When God looks at the aspirations for human greatness this world can offer, he sees it and he says, that is folly. That is futility. Don't chase it. Don't go after it. Instead, pursue faithfulness. Isn't that the great picture here? Whenever we see the church stuck in the middle of of this conflict, we hear the great reassurance of God that there is a way forward, and that way is faithful living. Verse 32, this is where, where this is just looming large for us, the faithfulness. Verse 32 mentions the people that know their God. Now, we talked about this in our um, Sunday school this morning. Who are the people who know their God? What are they like? They trust God. They know that he's the sovereign Lord who moves history according to his purpose. The people who know their God look around and they're able to see, you know, the nations are raging, but I have one in the heavens. They're they're able to look and, and see disturbing turns in the news, in the media around them. And, 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 and nevertheless, they're able to say, but my God is in control. The people who know their God have that stable reference point. The very personal God of the scriptures. Is that you? Are you the people who who know their God? Here's our reminder that we need to be those people. That's our job. Right here and now. Know your God. Believe him. 
trust that he has history under control, even when everything in us says it's time to freak out. Here's the second thing that God calls the faithful to do. He says, know know me, know your God. And then he says, know your task. The people who know their God shall take action. They shall stand firm and take action. Now, what does it mean when you know your God? It means you know what he expects you to do. He's he's made clear how how you are to live. And so if you are that college student that sees the nations raging around you and you see the chaos and you see people that are are lost and confused, what do you do? You don't give in. You stay faithful. You, You focus on the Lord. You find other believers that you can... Come alongside and, 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 and who can stir you up and teach you to stay strong and to not cave in to temptations. That's your task, faithful resistance. And that's what we're doing here. I just want to remind you that, that, that gathering for worship is one of the most countercultural things that we can do. It is saying, Lord, there is chaos around us. We need to focus on what's true. We need to focus on what's right. I need to be in church. And then I need to go and I need to live out that faithful call in my life. I need to take seriously what you say about marriage. I need to take seriously what you say about about life and love, even when the world says, that's crazy talk. We say, no, it's not. That's faithfulness. Sometimes we need that reminder, don't you? You say, look, either I'm crazy or everyone else is crazy. God saying, look, just be faithful. Just be faithful. Know your God, know your task. You're called a faithful resistance. And finally, friends, know your future. Is there any question? Is there really any doubt that God is going to bring us through all of this madness to the other side? Is there any doubt that God is going to do what he's promised us? He's going to take his people. He's going to preserve his people. And he's going to vindicate us. And finally, there's going to come a day when God's church is seen for what it really is. The headquarters of a kingdom that will not end, that will not falter. That's our future. We're destined for glory, friends. That's what lies ahead of you. Heaven, the hope of eternal life, the hope of this earth made to be what it really is, a kingdom of people worshiping God, not vying for power, but bowing the knee. You've got to remember what your future holds. And friends, it's because we belong to Jesus Christ who died for our sins, rose again on the third day, and who is giving, pouring out on his church newness of life, that we have that very hope, that the God who gave his own son, the God who controls history, is moving history in one single direction towards the glory of his kingdom, the glory of his son's kingdom. Do you know your future? Know your God, know your task, know your future. Stay faithful. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, there's much in history that perplexes us. There's much in history that can feel boring to us, but Lord, you give it life. Help us to see it for what it really is, Lord. Help us to not be charmed by the powers of this world and to be enchanted by its power and its, its pleasures. But Lord, help us to pursue a faithfulness, a faithful resistance that says, I will not cave in. I will suffer for what lies ahead. And Lord, as we suffer in this life, may it not be without meaning, but may it refine us so that your church will finally be what it is, the glorious headquarters of a kingdom. Pray this all in Christ's name. Now, friends, I invite our elders to come forward for the Lord's Supper.